0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the next episode of my podcast, Addictive History. Yay! The show where I, your humble host, Calcium, take a product that you are most likely addicted to and tell you how it has ruined an unfortunate nation and most likely the rest of the world. Today we will be looking at the other white powder from Latin America which I have become addicted to, sugar. More specifically, Cuban sugar, and how the simple product crippled a nation and for centuries, tying it to global powers as they rose and fell. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy this. Part 1. Conquistadors and Colonisers We begin back in 1492, when that hack Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and discovered that he couldn't just sail west to India to get around high prices, as there was a whopping great landmass in the way. He then kidnapped a few natives, dismembered a few more, before running back to the king and queen of Spain, claiming that he had discovered a new continent, which already had millions of people living on it, but hey, who cares, it's the 15th century. Now, Cuba wasn't actually formally colonised until about 20 or so years later in 1511, when Diego Velázquez and around 300 men arrived, brutally slaughtered the locals for three years until, in 1514, he had finished with the soon-to-be European tradition of forcing his beliefs onto them and burning, maiming and murdering anyone who disagreed. Ah, the Age of Discovery. Now, the Spanish may have been the pioneers of colonisation, but they didn't truly manage to perfect it as the Brits, French and Portuguese and Dutch would go would later on do. You see, when they arrived in the New World, they only cared about one thing, gold. And in Cuba, the conquistadors quickly found most of the gold that they could and then began to move on to where the real money was, Mexico and Peru. So Havana mainly became the Spanish gate to the New World, where Spanish ships would gather and set sail together before they were raided by British pirates. But what about the actual native inhabitants? Well, don't worry, the Spanish did have a role for them. As slaves in the encomienda system, feudalism but somehow even more repressive. The conquistador shows up, gets a bit of land and some native slaves to work it, but why do they need it? Well, you see, over in India they had discovered a granted, labour-intensive way of gaining sugar grains from sugar cane, and the people of the, of the old world were gaining a taste for this new product. So the Spanish brought it over to their new colonies and started making their own to, once again, cut down on prices. However, surprise, surprise, a life of long, back-breaking hours, constant brutal abuse, and a lack of protection from all the new diseases that the conquistadors brought with them, ended up killing off most of the original native population of Cuba. But no worries, the slave trade is picking up, and now we have lots of fine young men and women stolen from their homes who can now replace your depleted workforce. Now, the Spanish were rather cagey about this whole trading thing. And the Spanish colonies were at first forced to trade solely with the motherland. As you may have guessed, this isn't a great way to run a mainly export-based economy. And Cuba struggled initially, until eventually. Yes, the British showed up during the Seven Years' War in 1762. Yes, we found a way to help ruin this country too. Oh, what we did was uh, occupy the place, kill a few people, until eventually the Spanish were willing to give us Florida and Jamaica. Oh, and we also made the tiny change of having all trade restrictions dropped so that the world could trade with Cuba. By the world, I mean, like, Europe. This means. uh, Now, at the time, this didn't really mean much. After all, Cuba was just some forgotten little fortress island. Now, the real moneymaker at the time was the French colony of Haiti. And... No one cared about Cuba. That is, of course, suddenly. France burned into fla- France burst into flames in 1789 and Haiti then followed suit in 1791 with a massive and brutal slave revolt led by Toussaint Louverture uh, that would go on to lead to the island's freedom and independence in 1804. But that's something you can look into in your own time. I've got to try and stay on topic here after all. So, the Haitian Slave Revolt led led to the destruction of Europe's main source of sugar, and someone, after all, had to fill this gap. Cuba, now free from restrictive trade limitations, was now happy to oblige, and demanded more slaves and land dedicated to the new source of white gold, until eventually, in 1804, they were enjoying free trade with the world, which was, again, mainly Europe. But... With one exception, a country to their north who have been surprisingly absent from our story so far. The people who believe the world revolves around them, the United States of America, who begin the next phase of our story. Part 2. Revolutions and Corporations By the 19th century, things hadn't been going too well for the Spanish Empire. They were very clearly a declining power as their economy stagnated and they were invaded by the French and their American colonies had begun to break away and become new independent states in bloody and embarrassing revolutionary wars. The most notable being in what's now Colombia, Venezuela and Ecuador involving some bloke named Simon the Spanish were losing their grip on the New World, but what did this mean for Cuba? Well, Spain's dwindling economy had led Cuba's governors, who happened to be Spanish nobility most of the time, to double down on the only products that they could grow in vast quantities on the island. Surprisingly, this happened to be sugar. Of course, a great increase in sugar production needed two key ingredients. Number one was heavy machine was heavy investment in order to buy the new steam machines in order to help speed up the harvest. The only problem was the Spanish Empire wasn't able to provide such funds. So guess who stepped in? The Ameri- um, the Americans and their private investors. Remember this bit for later. The second key ingredient was labor, and that came in two main forms. First, the traditional method of slaves from Africa. Between 1790 and 1867, it's estimated that around 800,000 slaves were brought to Cuba, an island that in 1790 doesn't have a population of more than 250,000. Now, This became a great source of worry for the Spanish governors, who feared that such a large increase of African slaves, the possibility of a Haitian-style revolution, would increase. So they made efforts to keep the balance, as it were, inviting some 30,000 French Haitian planter refugees from the Haitian Revolution, as well as desperate people from Spain who were granted land and a new start. Ironically, these attempts to try and avoid a revolution only ended up creating one, as the new refugees and Spanish immigrants began to slowly develop a sense of a new Cuban identity and a desire to be free from the Spanish yoke. And so began the Wars for Independence, the first start starting in 1868, when a sugar mill owner, Manuel Carlos de Céspedes, freed his slaves and with several other Cuban-born planters and other wealthy natives, began a 10-year struggle for independence against the vile Spanish oppressors, which uh, ultimately failed. It ended in 1878 with the Pact of Fanyon, which promised the end of slavery in Cuba, But uh, slavery wouldn't actually be abolished in Cuba until 1886, after another war of independence in 1879, known as the Little War as it barely lasted a year. However, this means that the stage had been set for the final Cuban revolution in 1895, masterminded by José Martín, the man who would go on to be shot off his horse in his first appearance in battle, barely four months into the war. And so, what Jose hoped would be a quick and fruitful revolution turned into a gruelling four-year struggle for the, for the independence fighters, with brutal blows taken and dealt out on both sides, until finally, the Cuban revolutionaries had begun to decisively turn the war in their favour. At long last, a Cuba free from foreign intervention would be born. Or at least, it would have been, if not for... Yes, don't worry, American listeners, it's your time to shine. The United States had had their eye on Cuba for quite a while now, ever since the Native American nightmare-causing Andrew Jackson had said that Cuba would make a great addition to the Union, and Monroe had declared two continents belong to the United States citizens. America had been sinking its economic fangs into the Cuban sugar trade, and by the time of the war, less than 20% of sugar plantations actually belonged to Cubans or even Spaniards, with 95% of all sugar exports going directly to the US. This, of course, meant that when the Cuban revolution began and Cuban freedom fighters began tearing down the age-old symbols of foreign intervention in their land the sugar mills, American investors were appalled that their private property was being damaged and $50 million worth of investments was going down the drain. It was just un-American! And so they began lobbying President Grover Cleveland for an intervention, as well as paying off the papers to portray Cuba as a beautiful white woman needing the strong American hero Uncle Sam to save her from her vile Spanish captor. However... Presidents Grover Cleveland and William McKinley ignored Congress's appeals for war. Until, of course, the USS Maine, which had been sent to Havana to protect uh, US interests, mysteriously blew up in the middle of the night. And suddenly, it's time for someone to go and get liberated! <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Right, uh, surprisingly, the Cubans weren't exactly keen on this intrusion. José Martí had originally envisaged envisaged this short war, partly to avoid the the destruction of the Ten Years' War, and partly to ensure that the Americans didn't find a way to involve themselves. Nevertheless, the Americans pursued on sending over 70,000 men men, to Cuba, including one Theodore Roosevelt and his bull moose cavalry, and... Skirmishes Within three months of what was an already one four-year conflict, the Americans had stolen the show, renaming the Cuban Revolution to the Spanish-American War, the Philippines, and initial hopes of Cuban sovereignty, when the Cubans saw the Star-Spangled Banner fly over Havana and the Americans turned Cuba into an American puppet. Now hang on! I hear people say, that just doesn't sound rad! America gave Cuba her freedom! They were never a puppet. Well, thing is, this is the world of the 19th century. To put it gently, egos, countries' attitudes and racial attitudes weren't exactly in control, to put it gently. And the American ego was rapidly inflating. They had just given Cuba her freedom, and now they were going to enjoy it. Robert E. Lee, you know, the guy who... uh, led the Confederates in the Civil War, the guys who fought for slavery. Anyway, his, gran- his nephew, Fitzau-Lee, God, oh, what a stupid name, became the first Consul General of Cuba in 1896, and then Governor General in 1899. Attitudes towards Cuba changed. Cuba was no longer the beautiful white lady needing Sam's rescue. Now it was depicted as a small coloured boy clutching Uncle Sam's hand. U.S. ideals were introduced in Havana, like male suffrage for all, provided they could read, write, or own $250 worth of property, which conveniently excluded most coloured men. And women, of course. (laughs) Uh... So, suddenly, a new organisation called the Klu Klux Klan Cubano made several appearances, and American investment poured in, taking advantage of a war-torn economy and shaping it to, an almost, to being almost entirely dependent on America. Suffice to say that when the Cubans were finally allowed to govern themselves again in 1909, they weren't exactly the most stable state in the Americas. This chaos saw the rise of the right-wing military dictator Fulgencio Batista, who staged the initial military coup and junta in 1933, before then stepping down. Before realising that he actually quite liked ruling the country and seizing control again in 1952, because apparently private property was being damaged again. This period, this ensuing period of Cuba's history, is see with the bit which American, which American propaganda loved to praise before what's coming. If you know your history. Anyway, this is the bit that they loved, as uh, it's when Cuba truly was America's playground. It's a great place to make money thanks to its massive sugar industry and and America's ever-dependence for the white gold, as they started mass-producing things like Coca-Cola. And by the end of World War II, the US had overseen another boom in the Cuban sugar industry. But they still directly controlled 45% of it, as well as 23% of all other non-sugar-related industry, including half of the railways and 90% of all electricity and communication services. Everything was doing great if we ignored all the social disparities, racism, poverty, lack of freedom, brutal uh, brutal repression. But who cares if the mafia are able to create a new Las Vegas out of Cuba? which has been immortalised in The Godfather Part 2. But anyway, if anyone who knows anything about the Cold War is listening, they're getting excited, as here we are, the 1950s. Because here comes the moment when Cuba steps onto the world stage for most people. Here comes the big one, the second Cuban revolution, the communist one. Part 3 The Cold War Alright ladies and gentlemen, here we are, the most famous part of Cuban history. For this we are going to need to introduce three key figures. First of all, the man given the explosive cigars an incredible libido and the inability to know when to shut up after talking for a record 8 hours fidel castro next up the man whose poster is in every college room store is in every college roommate storm room che guevara and rahul castro Together, the Castro bros would be banished from Cuba after a far too long speech from Castro called History Will Absolve Me, an attitude he and his mates would continue to have as they would go on. Met with Che in Mexico City, got drunk, snuck onto Cuba, killing all but 12 of their 120-man team in the landing, and miraculously won the revolution in 1959, epitomised by Che and Rahul, murdering thousands in an old stadium televised to the people. Now, funnily enough, the US, uh, the United States of Freedom wasn't exactly happy at a brand new communist state in their backyard. And uh, upon the violent purges, and more importantly, agrarian land reforms which took away US private property. Scandalous. This led to the US President Eisenhower imposing a 1960 trade embargo which excluded foodstuff and medicine until, in 1961, the US finished the job and banned food and medicine in the trade embargo. Now, for an economy that had been through heavy, in- heavy investment in a luxury industry, sugar, and structured almost entirely on US trade by the time of the revolution, half of, Q- half a- half of Cuban sugar exports made a third of US sugar imports, uh, this was a bit of a problem, but nevertheless, Che Guevara himself, took, in response, took it upon himself to save the revolution by removing the island's painful reminders of foreign control in the form of the sugar mills. Unfortunately, his main idea for this was a rapid industrialization programme, with no money, which, surprisingly, failed. With, with, By that point, but to his credit, by that point... Cuba was in such a state that no one, with no matter what economic system or ideology, could have actually gotten Cuba off of its off of its sugar cash cow. However, luckily for Castro and his fledgling revolution, there was one who would step in. The original founders of a communist state, the United Soviet States of Russia, the CCP themselves, the USSR. Sorry, I meant the CCCP. The ugh. It confusing. There are so many of these similar names. Anyway, so back in the USSR, the new premier of the US, the new premier, the new premier, Nikita Khrushchev, was willing to support a new communist state in America's backyard. But the party wanted something in return for this risky endeavour. And in their opinion, there was only one thing which the Cuban people could really offer the Eastern Bloc. That sweet, sweet white gold. Sugar. Now, when Castro's advisers, and particularly Che, heard this, they weren't exactly happy. They had just delivered Cuba her freedom and given her the ability to stand on her own two feet without an empire to prop her up. And here were the Soviets forcing Cuba back into her position of a subservient sugar bag. However, Castro saw that he would need some help. So we agreed to a sugar for oil trade agreement where in return for a large Soviet subsidy of an estimated four to five million dollars and a and crude oil, which would continue to be sold on the global market as Cuba didn't have the refineries to use it. And the Americans, even though Castro Fidel Castro asked really nicely, refused to let him use their refineries. Anyway, they would get the oil and all in return for, at first, an agreement to purchase sugar. To give, you, to give you an idea of the scale of this agreement, between 1965 and 1970, 24 million tons of sugar would be sent to Russia alone. The Cubans could do no, could do no more but watch as King Sugar ruled the island once more. Castro wasn't done. He wanted to try and turn this over-reliance on sugar on its head and make the people proud to be the main provider for the Eastern Bloc. And so in 1968, he launched his most ambitious plan yet, the Zafra, or the Pafra. I'm not really sure how it's pronounced. He would mobilise the entire Cuban workforce in order to harvest a whopping 10 million tonnes of sugar for that annual harvest. This was going to be his five-year plan, but unfortunately, it turned out to be his great leap forward. He managed he gr- he granted he granted he managed a record-breaking eight million tons, but in the process, further cripples Cuba, who needed extra sh- food shipments from the Eastern Bloc, as since everything had gone into sugar, there was a shortage of other foods. Suffice to say, the Soviets weren’t exactly happy, and following Castro's refusal to step down as leader, they essentially strong-armed him into closer coordination with the Comic-Con, the USSR’s economic alliance. Five-year plans for everyone. And so Cuba would struggle on as once hopeful as a once hopeful and optimistic time faded into more of the status quo. As, once more, King Sugar ruled the island's foreign policy and agreements and trade and economic situation with an iron fist. That is, until... Part 4. Change at last? I would have had some sort of music here, but I'm not really sure what music symbolised- Well, I couldn't find any non-copyright music that symbolised the end of the Cold War, and I don't have the money to go and buy David Hasselhoff singing Freedom or whatever. Anyway, yes, finally we are reaching the end of our story, which picks up again in 1991. The wall is down and the Marxists frown and the USSR hasn't really been feeling too good. The collapse of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Eastern and recent wrapping up of the costly war in Afghanistan hasn't left the USSR in the most stable of financial positions. So in 1991, they agree with the US to uh, end their four to five million dollar subsidy to the island. Now, with the loss of the main sugar markets, cu- with the loss of its main sugar markets, Cuba was thrown into a spin. Rationing of food and electricity began, and the Castro brothers, the last of the triumvirate which had brought the revolution, were now knew that they needed major reform if they wanted to save it. The U.S., on the other hand, just laughed. Soon, that communist pimple in their free world order would crumble. But surprisingly, despite the initial economic hardships brought on by the end of the subsidy and continued U.S. embargo, the revolution didn't fall. This was a homegrown revolution, one that had the support of the people, well, the ones that hadn't run away to Florida to provide inspiration for Scarface. Nevertheless, great reform was still needed, and the Castro brothers complied people were now constitutionally allowed to own the US dollar for the first time in 1959 and economically they were fi- they started to cater more towards the tourist industry which invited lots of investors most notably Cuba's old boss Spain anyway now the new, the mainly military militari- militarily owned tourist industry was now free Was now able to free Cuba to allow itself to wean itself off of its crippling sugar addiction, and thus there we have it. That pretty much sums up the end of Cuba's the story of Cuba's crippling over over reliance on its sugar economy. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. This is uh, this has been once once again. (laughs) <laughs> this one I think has been a lot more fun for me than the last one I did because this is the one I originally wanted to do before I lost practically all of my research for this in a great crash and here we are. I've finally done it. I'm happy. I've got it off my back and I even splashed out, you know, as you can tell. I've got some sound I had some sound effects in this, all non-copyright and all that. And yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm really happy to. This is this has been a lot of fun for a lot of fun for me. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. And yeah, if you have enjoyed it or you hated it, and you think that I skipped over loads or you couldn't hear me and you want me to shut up and never do something like this again, either or if by some miracle you enjoyed it and you want to say so, uh, there will probably there will most likely be a feedback link underneath this in Spotify. If you're on your phone, it should still work. Oh, you're just lazy or something. Uh, Anyway, uh, give that a go. Have a look at it. And depending on whether I want to do this or not, whether I find like another topic I really like and want to look at again, I'll either never do this again or I'll see you next time. Either way, goodbye. (laughs) Oh, and uh, by the way, to uh, any American listeners, if you are still here, I'm so, I'm so sorry. And, and American or Spanish, I'm so sorry if I've butchered pronunciations and even Russian. Uh, I'm so sorry if I've butchered pronunciations, especially to the Americans. I'm very sorry for my accent, especially the yee-haw. Oh, I'm sorry.